Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, this month the Lincoln Project is going to be dedicating itself and our energy to making sure that Americans across the country know the good job that Joe Biden is doing on behalf of the American people and on behalf of the United States. I hope you'll tune in to our work and share the content and materials we're putting out with your friends and neighbors. Guys, the next 14 months are as crucial a time as we've seen in our living memory. Go to lincolnproject.us or jointheunion.us to get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by veteran political analyst, strategist, and commentator, Simon Rosenberg. Simon is currently the founder and author of the Substack newsletter, Hopium Chronicles, which launched earlier this year. Prior to the Hopium Chronicles, he was founder and president of the center-left think tank, New Democratic Network, NDN, served in senior roles for the DNC and the DCCC, and is a veteran of two presidential campaigns, including the 1992 Clinton War Room. Simon is a frequent political commentator on cable news, and his work is often featured in the country's leading newspapers, magazines, and websites. Today, he's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Simon, welcome back. Reed, it's great to be here. All right, so the summer is over, as far as everybody's concerned. Not astrologically or astronomically, (laughs) but it's over for everybody else. The economy is growing. Unemployment is at a decades-old low. Inflation is flattening out. All the indicators economically are growing. The country, with the exception of sending arms and aid to Ukraine, is relatively speaking at peace. It is in an advantageous position vis-a-vis its global competitors. If you want a job in this country, as I noted, you know, you can get one, Simon. Joe Biden, two and a half years, almost three years into his presidency, has done more legislatively than most presidents can get done in eight. He has brought decency, normalcy, calm back to the Oval Office. And here we are about a year before some voters like in North Carolina are going to receive their absentee ballots. And all I see on the news, Simon, is that the sky is falling. The sky is falling. (laughs) The sky is falling. Joe Biden has to defend every last move. And Donald Trump, you know, his likely opposition next fall, gets a free pass for being a crook, a criminal and a, you know, 91 times indicted whack job. So what the heck's going on? Listen, I I would much rather be us than them in every possible way in our politics right now. And and I I think I wrote a piece today on my Substack about what I'm calling asymmetrical engagement, meaning that the center-right coalition is engaged. They've got an active primary. There are ads being run, you know, people raising money. Their candidates are all over Fox News. There are debates. Their leader is, you know, facing potential imprisonment. And I think that the center-right coalition has engaged and is showing up in polling as sort of active and paying attention. And I think if you're a Democrat, you had a good summer, right? You don't have to really start thinking about politics right now. I mean, our politics are settled. And so I, I think that our coalition hasn't really engaged yet in 2024. What I mean by that is that you're seeing a softness in some of Biden's polling right now. And I think that's to be expected. I don't think it's worrisome to me. It means that we have work to do, but it's we are 14 months out. And, you know, Democratic voters haven't had a reason to start really thinking about 2024. And I think once Trump becomes the nominee, which could be as early as January next year, I think that the choice will be, you know, forced onto our coalition and you'll start to see our coalition really engage, or when the Biden campaign starts really turning on, which it hasn't yet. And so I, I feel good about where we are right now, to be honest. I think that Biden's had a good summer. I mean, not only did the economy do all the things that you said, and it's got much better over the summer, but his border policies clearly are working and have 
brought calm to the border after years of chaos. Now we know the murder rate is way down. We know also that, you know, we're going to see more oil and renewable energy produced this year than any year in American history. And so many of the central attacks that Republicans have been making against Biden, inflation, crime, the border, the war on energy, they've all gotten harder to make. You know, I I joke that Joe Biden had a good summer. Republican talking points had a really bad summer. And so, you know, I think Joe Biden's case for re-election has been strengthened in the last few months while they've given us Trump. I mean, Trump's going to be the nominee. And after he wins the nomination in January, he's going to spend the rest of the year (laughs) in court and in various legal cases. And I think they're going to be saddled with a guy that's going to be the hardest candidate to sell in our modern lifetime in the business read. So I feel good about where things are right now for us. And I think that Joe Biden has the opportunity. He's got a good story to tell. He's going to have to tell it. He's going to have to tell it vigorously. He's going to have to make a very strong case for it. They're going to have to spend a lot of money to break through all the noise and the, the way that Trump sort of dictates the daily discourse in, in the country. But these are doable things. The things that Trump has to do to win the election, to put lipstick on the Trump pig, so to speak, those are much harder, I think, in politics to see how that gets done next year. So I, I feel good about where we are, but clearly we've got work to do. You know, I got a call from a reporter, I guess, last week before Labor Day as we're recording this. And the premise of the article was, why isn't Joe Biden attacking Donald Trump? And I said, well, tell me exactly why he needs to. First of all, he's the president of the United States. It's the White House. He is doing the work, right, day in and day out. And I think that we're seeing, as you just noted, the fruits of that labor. And I said, if anybody's going to attack, wouldn't it be the campaign or the DNC or the Democratic apparatus? And it just seems like the media wants Joe Biden to engage with Donald Trump. They want this fight. It's not even the horse race so much as like the MMA fight, Simon. Yeah, look, I think that Biden is doing exactly what he should be doing now at a strategy level. If you look at the numbers, what Joe Biden needs to do more than anything else is he's got to get his poll numbers up and he's got to get more credit for the things that he's done. And that's where he's spending most of his time. That's where he should be. There's going to be plenty of time to go after Trump next year. You know, we've got 14 months, but at a strategy level, job one right now is getting more credit for what he's done. And we know from polling, Reed, you know, we've seen tons of polling this year, and there's been a ton of both public and private polling that tells us that people don't really know what Joe Biden's done. And when they're informed, his standing goes way up. And we, we know this. And so it's why I think there's a quiet confidence in the Democratic camp right now, which is that, you know, we know through a billion dollars of media and through when after the, Trump becomes the nominee in January, February, when it's a two-person race and the Republican primaries over and the trials aren't, you know, Republicans are eating up the entire news hole right now between the trials, the legal actions, their primary. When it becomes one-to-one and Biden's, the more attention goes to the Biden campaign, I think there's this quiet confidence that he's been a good president, the country's better off, they're going to be able to make that case. This is doable. We've all been on campaigns where the things you need to do are not easy. I'm not saying these are easy, but these are not the hardest things that have ever had to happen in an election. And because the facts are on our side, the country is better off. Joe Biden's been a good president. So I I think there's a quiet confidence in the Democratic camp about next year. And I I just think we also have to recognize, and I think, Reid, going back to something you implied in your comment, in 2022, one of the reasons that people thought a red wave was coming was because there was a normalization of how crazy the Republicans had become, right? I mean, to believe that there was going to be this incredible election for Republicans, you had to believe that Americans had looked the other way on abortion and on January 6th and all the other things. And the truth is the voters don't look the other way on that stuff. This stuff is very front of mind. And I think a lot of the reporters, you know, I did an interview today where I had to remind the reporter that this election wasn't like previous elections because the person who's going to be the nominee tried to end American democracy and, you know, a few years ago. And I think that stuff is going to matter to voters next year. It may not matter to voters now because Trump isn't the nominee. And we only really learned that the conspiracy to end American democracy and install a dictator in the country was a Republican party-wide conspiracy the government really only made that case just a few weeks ago. And so I think that once over time, I just think that selling what they've done is going to be really hard, where selling what we've done is something that we can do and achieve. 
Well, a couple of things related to 2022, and you and, and our own Joe Trippy said this too, which was, in fact, you guys got accused, and that's why I think you named your Substack a Hopium, right? You guys got <laughs> accused by what's his name from 538, or maybe he's not there anymore. Formerly of 538. Formerly of 538, yep. of selling Hopium, that this was going to be a red wave, that there was no chance that Democrats could have any success. The truth is, is that Republicans have underperformed in 2018. They overperformed a little bit in 2020, but that was as much about the fact that there were otherwise, quote unquote, still normal Republicans running for the U.S. Senate, running for the U.S. House. They underperformed again in 2022. And we just saw this, I think it was in a county in Iowa, where in a plus 56 Trump county, the MAGA guy got crushed by an otherwise normal Democrat. I think it was for county auditor or something. We saw this in a race that you know well in Jacksonville, Florida. We saw this again in the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. We saw this for the mayorship of Colorado Springs, Colorado, the most conservative place probably pound for pound in the country, which is an otherwise normal, competent, and confident Democrat will beat the nut every day just about. Yeah, look, we learned in 2022 that polling wasn't telling the whole story, that there was a lot of other data that was available to us. Part of the reason Tom Bonnier and I and Joe Trippi got the election right was that we were looking at data beyond just national polls. And what that data was telling us, what we, you know, we saw us overperform in House specials all across the country in 2022. We overperformed in Kansas. We overperformed in fundraising. We overperformed in voter registration. We overperformed in the early vote. And all of those indicators of intensity, despite the fact that people had declared a red wave, all of these indicators of intensity were indicating that the Democrats had intensity and Republicans didn't. And that's carried on through this election into this year, as you pointed out, and just Ohio, right, a few weeks ago, where a state where we've had a really hard time, we just had an incredibly successful ballot measure, right? So I think that I just counsel everybody to remember that one of the big lessons in 2022 was that the polling was having a hard time capturing the actual dynamic of what happened when people were voting, and that this sense that the driving force in our politics since 2018 has been fear and opposition to MAGA. It's been the most powerful force in our politics, more powerful than disappointment in Joe Biden and the Democrats, more powerful than fear of inflation. And, and it's going to be, in all likelihood, the, the most powerful dynamic in 2024, potentially even more so than in recent elections, because the Trump is a much uglier version of Trump than he was earlier. Because he's not going to be better between now and next November. <laughs> I, I right? mean, I keep saying the math on this, like, how does he pick up any votes, right? He got, he only got 47% of the vote last time. And I think it's much more likely he gets 45 than 49. And it's why I think Democrats, you know, part of what we talked about when I was on the show in March, Reed, was this idea that Democrats should not be just trying to win in 2024, but we need to be trying to get to 55%. We need to try to win by 10 points to make this election a clear repudiation of MAGA. It will be the best thing for America, the Democrats, but it'll be the best thing for the Republican Party, too, because it will hopefully begin to loosen the grip of MAGA on the party of Lincoln and Reagan. You know, so part of my theory on this, and I've done analysis, you can find it on my Substack, is that I've shown that even if you take the 2020 numbers and just hold everything constant, but change one thing, which is get the under 45 vote up to its population distribution, meaning that the same level in the population, which is not a crazy thing, right? Then we get to 55%. And again, 55 sounds crazy in our system. But in 2022, we got to 59 in Colorado, 57 in Pennsylvania, 55 in New Hampshire, 55 in Michigan. We just got to 56 in Wisconsin. We just got to 57 in Ohio, right? So we're actually repeatedly in a very competitive environment, getting up into the upper 50s. And it's my hope that the Biden team, you know, my in some ways, my biggest worry is about lack of ambition, right, is that to get to 55, you have to build a politics to do that. It isn't something that you stumble over. To me, there are four groups that we have to be looking at, right, to expand our coalition. Young people, I think the politics of abortion is still something we're still trying to figure out and understand. It's new. And I think there's a lot of growth that can happen as we've seen in Ohio and Kansas and in Michigan and Kentucky. other places. Kentucky, right? I think the world that you operate in, the Never Trump or Never MAGAs, I think that you know all of you have played a critical role in our success in recent elections. And I think that 
you know, the work that you do here and your colleagues around the country creating a permission structure for Republicans or people who used to be Republicans to vote temporarily Democratic, right? It may not be for all time, but, you know, is really, really important for expanding our coalition. And then also Hispanic voters. I think that we can do better with Hispanics than we have in recent years. And, you know, it's not a huge number, but two or three points times four groups is a lot of votes, right? And so I think the opportunity for us this cycle is about expansion and growth. And I'm optimistic that what we've seen in 2023 is we've gone and taken away demographic and geographic real estate from Republicans that they had. And in their time of weakness and extremism, which is exactly what we need to do next year is to keep growing. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic, but I'm optimistic based on data and based on, like you read, you know, decades in the business where we've, we understand the ebb and flow of these things. And certainly it's just, again, I go back to this fundamental observation that I think our path for victory next year is clear. Theirs is not. And it's why I'm optimistic about our opportunities next year. So let me let me key on something that you said, which was you noted that there is a quiet confidence on the Democratic side. You said that your biggest fear was a lack of ambition. So my question to you then is how do you ensure that quiet confidence and maybe not lack of ambition, but absence of ambition doesn't become complacency? I think there's something that's happened in the United States in recent years that is not well understood in Washington, the national media. And it's something that I've learned through my writing and through by speaking to grassroots groups all over the country. Reed, and I'm sure you're, you and I speak to some of the same groups and operate in the same circles, is that there's been an explosion of citizen activism in, in America. You know, there are two, three, four million people who've just decided that they're not going to let their democracy slip away. And, you know, they're giving money, they're making their phone calls, they're texting, they're participating in Zooms. They've become big citizens in a time when the country really needed it. And I think that what that activism has done is that it's given our campaigns more money than we've ever had before. I mean, we outraised many of the key Republican candidates in 2022 by four or five, six to one, something we've never done before. You now can make phone calls in, from California into places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, which is something you couldn't do six, eight years ago. And so all these millions of Americans, these proud patriots who love their country, who are not going to let their democracy slip away, has become sort of a secret weapon for Democrats. And what it's doing is that it's pushing our performance and our turnout to the upper end of what's possible. I mean, to me, one of the most amazing statistics in recent years was that we did better in the early vote in 2022 than we did in 2018 and 2020, which were years where we did much better in the election. And that was a sign of institutional strength and organizational strength and power that taking these millions of people and concentrating their work, we can push, we can change elections, right? I mean, I joke, the way I talk about hopium is that hopium is hope with a plan, right? You know, you can hope the election is going to be good or you can go to work and make it so, right? And what happened is we continually now look at these elections, people go to work, and then we push our performance to the upper end of what's possible. That's what happened in the battlegrounds in 2022. It's what's happened this year in 2023. It's what's going to happen in next year in 2024. Is there something bigger than the candidates that's in our politics now, which is this existential threat of our democracy slipping away? And frankly, for many, also Dobbs is become an equally powerful threat to freedom and our American way of life. And so I think I will just say, as somebody who's been in this business a long time, I just have been blown away by the passion, intensity, and fight and resilience and grit that's in the Democratic family right now. And I think that even if Joe Biden isn't the most exciting candidate in American history, I don't know that that's going to matter next year. It would be great if he was lighting the world on fire. But I also think that we have enough people now who are going to carry us and create intensity, regardless of what happens in the general election. So I, I think it's our superpower. I think we have this powerful tool or a powerful muscle that we've never really had before that is going to propel us to victory next year. And it's why I'm not worried about the polls, because you know Joe Biden's approval rating is about where it was in October of 2022 when we had a terrific election. And so there's something much more powerful in our system now than just the traditional Democrat-Republican. The election feels that the dynamic and the issues we're debating are much bigger than even the individual candidates. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
you know, in this world, we carry around a lot of stress, big stress and small stress. And when we keep it bottled up, it starts to affect us negatively. Our health, our outlook, our lives. Sometimes it just works to get it out, to talk it through, to sit down with somebody and have them hear you. And therapy is a place where you can do that. It's a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through the things that are weighing us down. I know so many people who've benefited from therapy because it taught them coping skills to deal with stress, to deal with the things that were making their lives more difficult. Those coping skills can teach people how to set boundaries, how to empower you to become the best version of yourself, and how to get through life in a way that makes you a better person for yourself and those around you. It isn't just for people who've experienced big traumas or major setbacks in their lives. Therapy can help everybody. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. By the way, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lincoln Project today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lincoln Project. Let me ask you this to our friends and those we're friendly with in the media. Why don't they get it? Why is it still the horse race? It's a Republican versus a Democrat. You know, I understand that the right wing media ecosystem is vast and always growing and is a normative force in what happens, you know, from a media perspective in this country. As you noted, I think that's brilliant and recommend everybody go to Simon's Substack and read about the asymmetric engagement, which I think is a really good point. But, you know, it's not 2000. It's not 2004, 2008 or 2012. It's not even 2016 where everybody knew Trump was bad. We also assumed he was going to be crushed and he wasn't. And that sort of opened the floodgates for what we've seen. And so why is it, you know, and I won't just stack the media, but, you know, or some of our friends, some of the donor class who are like, oh, the lawsuits are going to take Trump out, right? He's done for. He's going to get, you know, Fonnie Willis is going to put him in prison. He won't be able to run. Oh, it's going to be the 14th Amendment. It's going to save us. Why is it that I think it's small, but I think it is significant, Simon, that all of the things you described are 100% possible, but there's still real hard work for the next 420 days. Yeah, look, I mean, we have a lot of work to do. We're not where we want to be. Joe Biden's not where he wants to be. The, what I described is what's possible, to your point. And I do think that part of the reason I started my Substack was that as somebody who grew up in the media business, I was a producer writer for ABC News as a young guy, and I grew up in the television news business before I went into politics. The lesson of the red wave for me was a little bit terrifying, to be honest. I mean, there was a lot of data showing that the election was not moving towards the Republicans, and all of that was dismissed. And you heard commentators saying in the final days that I guess women do care more about eggs costing 30 cents more than the loss of bodily autonomy, and you know, which was the most absurd thing that I've ever heard. And I think you had a lot of very prominent commentators and very smart people that we all know well read, you know, sort of get bullied and pushed into adopting a theory of the case that was just not there. The data wasn't backing it up. And it was a massive media failure. And it was a Republican orchestrated media failure that the media became complicit in. And I think it may have cost us the House. I mean, if you talk to people who were involved in the House races, they will tell you that money disappeared at the end that they thought they were going to have because of the sense that the red wave was coming and it got redirected to other places. And they were sucking wind a little bit at the end financially in the House races. And so there, that was consequential, I think. But I think this is also an important point which I feel it always bears repeating. Even if you disagree with everything that MAGA, Trump, the Republicans say, never underestimate that they are well-resourced, that they are well-organized, and that they are relentless because, Simon, for them, they see this as an existential fight. Yeah. Look, to get the red wave, that cost millions of dollars and was a highly organized op, right, that created, that involved, you know, more than a dozen Republican pollsters in seven different states. and With money that we'll never see. Yeah, money that we'll never see. We don't have any idea where it came from. And it's incredibly well-resourced. And there's a sense of desperation, right? That, you know, just in the way that we feel our democracy is slipping away, there are many on the right who view the demographic changes that are happening in the country as being existential to 
as I always say, that when Republicans say this isn't the country that I was born in, they're right about that. I mean, we've we're changing dramatically. I think for the better. But you know, this is an area of enormous contention. And so, yeah, we can't underestimate the ferocity of the fight on their side and the willingness to sort of throw out the rule book and to, you know to sort of just do whatever it takes, right, to preserve the sort of the Bill Barr you know way of just do whatever it takes, right? I mean, steal a Supreme Court seat, do outrageous redistricting, right? We're now at a point where the Republicans are willing to do whatever it takes, and it's what's making them in a liberal anti-democratic force, right? Because even the debt ceiling fight earlier this year was something that had never happened before because it was so fundamentally dangerous to the country that reasonable people wouldn't have done what Kevin McCarthy did. And so I think there is this desperation and a wounded animal, right, willing to do whatever it takes that we can't pretend isn't there. I agree with you, Reid, 100%. I mean, I think that one of the things we were discussing before I came on is that this idea that we have to take wins when they come and that I've really become convinced that Democrats battered by Fox News and right-wing media for decades have started to really internalize many of the Republican arguments against us. And I do this exercise on my presentations where I say, Joe Biden has been a good president, period. The country is better off, period. The Democratic Party is strong, period. No comma, no semicolon, no buts, no howevers. Because when you do the buts and the howevers, you're bringing Republican arguments into the discourse for them. And, you know, Republicans are good at that. There's no reason for us to be doing their work for them. We need to be telling our story, going on offense every day, you know, understanding that in many ways, one of the ways I think, Reed, that we overcome this sort of extraordinary loudness advantage the right has, as I call it, is that we have the secret weapon we have in that is not only podcasts and substacks and Resolute Square and all the things that are growing, the bulwark and, you know, Pod Save America, but we also have millions of Americans who we need to reimagine the war room in my mind, right? The war room that I worked in 31 years ago when we think of it, it's like 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, producing, you know, rapid response videos. Which we had all the way really through the 2012 cycle. Yeah, which is fine. And that was fitting for a different time. Now the war room has to be two to three million people, you know, going to work, network together, amplifying, you know, the good works of the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. And remember, Tucker Carlson reached three million people a night and became one of the most powerful people in American politics. If 1 million Democrats reach 10 people a day, that's 10 million people. And I think that we have more agency and more power than we understand. I think a lot of that power has been directed towards campaigns, and it's been very effective. I think we have to do a second thing, though, now, which is that we have to have a consciousness of participating in the daily information war, if you want to call it that, the daily discourse, and using our networks to spread positive information about the country, about Joe Biden, because I think that I've become convinced in my journey in the last few years that the central project of MAGA is to spread negative sentiment in our politics, to make us feel less good about America, about our democracy, our institutions, our leaders, each other. And part of the response is why you brought me on today, Reed, was that we need to respond to that negative sentiment, not with negative sentiment of our own, but with also positive sentiment and to help give permission for the American people to love their country again and to love one another and to be positive about this great American journey that we're all on together. Because one of the most important things that I think will be part of the discourse next year is that both Russia and China are stumbling now, right? I mean, two of our greatest adversaries who have challenged the American-led global order are now stumbling in different ways. It's an amazing opportunity for us to reassert American values, not just here at home, but all around the world. So there's a lot there. And you said so many things that I want to touch on. So I'm going to go mostly in order. I want to start at the end and then we'll go back through it. One is talking about this equivalency that Republicans and MAGA demand, that we are as good as everybody else, which is really interesting when your slogan is make America great again, right? <laughs> if you go back and you listen to Trump's speech, this past April in Waco on the anniversary of the Branch Davidian, where it's like retribution, fire and brimstone, the final battle, even going back to his inaugural speech, right? Everything is ugly. Everything is dark. Everything is broken. 
And it was their stated strategy, Simon, in 2020, which was before they knew that that they were going to have COVID and even after, that the country had to be as miserable and ugly and divided as they could because they needed so many people to stay home because the only way they knew they could win in that respect was by having turnout at historic lows. They knew that if otherwise normal human beings turned out, they'd lose. And so I think you can see that they're like, well, now we're going to go even further. And I think it's important to say this, too, about you, you mentioned sort of the Bill Barr rule is, you know, when you're a young Republican operative, it's sort of the Al Davis, right? Just win, baby. But that was in the context of, quote unquote, normal politics. It didn't mean you weren't ugly. Didn't mean you didn't hit with a sledgehammer. But there were things you clearly didn't do. Now it's there's nothing they won't say. There's not a line they won't cross. There's not a threat they won't make or carry out if they thought it was in their interests. And so I think that's a much different thing. But I think the other part, too, about democracy, if you go back to the end of 2021, we here at the Lincoln Project, and then Joe said just a few months later in 2022, at the beginning of 22, this election is going to be about democracy. And everybody said, you're crazy. Nobody knows what that means. It's too big. It's too broad. And we said, there's nothing big enough. And by Labor Day, Joe Biden's talking about how this election's about democracy. And the week before Election Day, he's talking about it again. Right. And so democracy is probably the only thing that's big enough to bring all those people together because they're telling us over here, gang, what it is they want to do. They write 500 page plans at the Heritage Foundation. Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, they tell us what they want to do. Look, I think we have to start just in the way I did that exercise earlier, right, where here's the other exercise that we have to the rhetorical exercise is that. In 2021, the Republican Party led a unprecedented conspiracy to overturn an American election, install a fascist dictator, and end American democracy. That's what they did. And I think that we have, over the last two and a half years, gone through incredible mental gymnastics as a country to not accept the reality of what I just said, that that couldn't happen here, right? There's a normalization bias that exists in our politics that's very powerful, right? And I think what Jack Smith did, what Fannie Willis has done, what happened in Michigan, was that it's getting harder and harder to not accept the reality and the severity and the gravity of what Trump and Ronna Romney McDaniel and Lindsey Graham and all the others, because it was a vast conspiracy involving hundreds and hundreds of Republicans all across the country, to end American democracy. And I, I think that this is obviously, I mean, I, obviously people are voting on this. We know this even from exit polls in 2022, that half of the people said ending democracy was the central reason they voted against the Republicans. And remember, pollsters were asking the question that they'd never asked before because it was taken for granted. Republicans have done two things in the last two and a half years, each of which could keep them out of power for a long time. One was trying to end American democracy, and which would be a blow not only to the United States, but to the entire global democracy movement. And the second was Dobbs and the abortion restrictions. Each of those things could be significant enough to keep them out of power for a very long time, and they've done two of them. And I think that, you know, it's why I think the Republican brand could be facing, they're on the precipice of something that could be really significant. I mean, when we won in the 1930s, you know this, Reed, right? I mean, we controlled the House of Representatives for 60 years. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but the, the possibility of the Republican Party brand being so destroyed and so tainted or so whatever that something else other than the Republican Party will have to be built is certainly a reasonable scenario now, you know, in the next 10 years. Because if you're a 25-year-old family two 25-year-olds living in Texas, and there's a higher likelihood that if your wife has a miscarriage, she's going to die. Are you really ever going to forgive the party that did that the rest of your life? I mean, these are lines, to your point, these are lines that are getting crossed that can affect an entire generation or two generations' relationship to the Republican brand that may make it very difficult for it to recover from in the future. And so... I think it's why we have to be on offense. We have to be making our case. We've got a powerful story to tell. I don't know what their story is going to be in 2024, right? That if you elect Donald Trump, you can make sure he doesn't go to jail. I mean, I, I don't, if you start really writing down what the Republicans are really offering to the American people, right? Economic chaos, 
higher deficits, more dead kids in schools, rolling back the gains we've made on climate change so we have a warmer planet. Just go down your list of things, you know, ending American democracy. It's the ugliest offering by a political party in our history. And shame on us if we don't not just win next year, but win big. Because I think, look, you and I have been doing this a long time. We got more stuff to hit them with than we've ever had in any party in, in modern, you know, potentially in the history of the country. And you don't have to make it up. And we don't have to make it up. And it's, by the way, stuff that people know, right? Like, these are not obscure things. People voted. Look, they've been voting against MAGA in the battlegrounds for three consecutive elections and then again in 2023, right? And so I just think that the ugliness of Trump, I mean, imagine that he becomes the nominee in January, February, and they're saddled with him. I mean, I think the one of the most interesting stories is going to be, is there any kind of real effort to dislodge him at the convention next year? You know, if he's down at 35% and if he's been, looks like he's going to go to jail or whatever, whatever happens, right? They have one Hail Mary, which is why these Virginia races really matter, because I think the Hail Mary candidate is today is Glenn Youngkin, right? And, and I think that it's why Democrats and those who believe in democracy, we need to have, we need to have a good election in Virginia. And early vote starts there in just a couple of weeks. It's hard to believe, September 22nd, right? So I think the Virginia race is actually a really important election for, you know, if we want to forestall the Republicans in 2024. I don't know that they'll ever be able to get rid of him because I don't know that there's a politician who's capable enough of bringing the Trump coalition along if he's dislodged somehow, you know, next year. But the key word there is politician. And this is what I've said. They made the deal with the devil. Everybody who's listening has heard me say it a million times. They might win with him. They can't win without him. Because I was listening to Steve Bannon's podcast the other day because I think it's important once in a while to tune into crazy land. And that is crazy land. And they, he had his some pollster on and said, look, I did an evaluation. 28 million Republican voters who are really Trump voters stay home if he's not on the ballot. I actually believe that. I do believe that, which also says to me, Simon, that we shouldn't sleep on the idea that the Republican establishment, as much as they say they can't stand Trump, would rather have him and the chance of winning than not have him and know they'll lose. Oh, I think that's clear as day. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, otherwise there would be a far more aggressive movement or there would be an effort to sort of winnow the field, for example. I mean, the biggest problem I think the Republicans now have, in addition to the two things I mentioned, is that the two guys who've emerged as potential challengers to Trump are historically awful candidates, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis and Vivek are some of the worst politicians and candidates we've ever seen in our lifetime. I mean, they're shockingly awful in so many different ways, which is an affirmation and a confirmation of how crazy the Republican Party has gotten, right? Is that there isn't a so-called normal alternative emerging. So it's Trump plus two historically awful extremists. And that's 80% of the party right there. Right. It's 80% of the party. I mean, Ron Brownstein writes all the time that the non-Trump part of the party is 20, 25%, you know, the non-MAGA part. You know, we didn't know who Vivek was, right? We didn't know him. The more that we learn about him, right, the more ridiculous and bananas he becomes on so many levels. And so it's really, I think that for the Republicans, the emergence of these two alternatives being equally bonkers and crazy and malevolent as Trump is an affirmation to many voters about this party's become irredeemable. And I would say this is, I actually think that DeSantis, maybe through ideology, but certainly through action and through omission, actually, as we saw these Nazis, you know, in Orlando marching up and down, he says nothing about it. He has removed small d democratically elected prosecutors from office. He has basically tried to do everything he can to screw up the insurance industry, you know, education. He's actually ultra MAGA in governance. I believe that. Vivek is the guy who represents so many guys that I know, and they are all guys who listen to the All In podcast, who are very well-to-do, live in big houses, in suburbs. Their kids go to either very good public schools or private schools. They went to college. They usually went to graduate school, right? These are not guys who are suffering in the hollows of eastern Kentucky. But somehow, when I ask them, and I try and be as neutral as I can, what do you think about Vivek? He represents something new. He represents American values. 
all this other stuff. And it's just amazing to see. And here's the other part, too. He's not a politician either. He understands, I think, intellectually, as opposed to Trump, who does it instinctually, that this is all a show. And I just have to go out there and do this BS. Yeah, look, they both represent sort of a new strain of MAGA. MAGA is continuing to evolve and grow, which is why we need to get to 55 and make this election a repudiation of all this. Because what we learned in the last few years is this is now much bigger than Trump, right? The infection, the MAGA infection has taken over the whole party. There was a party-wide conspiracy to end American democracy. This will now be part of the Republican story for all time, that the Republican Party and its leadership tried to end American democracy, not just the guy Trump. And now we've seen this, this evolution of MAGA, right? It's next generation, the strain of MAGA that is evolving, that is, you know, DeSantis is one of the most dangerous figures in modern American history and in the way his anti-democratic impulses and his attacks on business and commerce and his, you know, the immigration bill that he passed in Florida is not just the most anti-immigration bill passed in recent years, it's the most anti-immigrant bill proposed in America, probably in the last 50 or 60 years. And that's saying a lot, right? And so, you know, we're seeing this sort of normalization of extremism that is deeply worrisome, which is why I think for all of your listeners who are, you know, worried about all this, the most critical thing I can say is that you've got to channel that anxiety, that worry into action. And, you know, whether it's giving money, making phone calls, becoming an information warrior for democracy, being involved in Virginia elections, whatever it is. You know, part of the reason I started writing every day and sort of engaged in politics in a way I hadn't in a very long time was that I was worried and I felt like I needed to do more and I needed to fight harder and I needed to find vehicles to allow me to fight with all the tools that I can fight with. And that's what I've been doing over the last year and a half. And it's why I can sleep at night, right? Because I know that I'm doing everything I can to make sure our democracy doesn't slip away. It's critical that, you know, the more the circle of activism grows, the more Americans who are using 10 hours a week, five hours a week, whatever steps people are taking, right? It all adds up into something. The chorus gets much louder and we become more powerful and more effective, the pro-democracy forces. And that's why, you know, take that anxiety that you have and channel it into real action. It's how we win. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So I want to hear more about the Hopium Chronicles, but I have one last question to ask you. So we're at the beginning of September. As we get towards the end of September, obviously it's budget season in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. What Kevin McCarthy, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, has said is, I'm willing to begin an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. For what reasons? I guess it's Hunter Biden's laptop. It doesn't really matter. It's all BS anyway. But you have that paired up with the idea that the MAGA Republicans want to shut down the government. Now, a government shutdown started with Gingrich, 95, and it worked out badly for him. And every time it's been a government shutdown, it's been the Republicans. It's always worked out badly for them politically. And now we have it this sort of dual tracking of if you don't impeach Biden, Mr. McCarthy, then we're going to shut down the government. You know, you hear all this craziness on the right about the weaponization of government, but you hear about stuff like this or Tommy Tuberville holding up hundreds of flag officers, you know, absolutely putting our national security at risk. So tell me, like, is this just what we have to suffer with for the next 18 months while these clowns are still in office? I think so. I mean, I think the real interesting question that Kevin McCarthy has now is that, you know, they've made it pretty clear that if he doesn't do what they want, the people who we call the Freedom Caucus or the Insurrectionist Caucus, because these are the same people who aided and embedded the insurrection and to end and work to end American democracy. Once you've done that, right, then there's no, like, you know, there's no limit, you know, like, okay, we tried to overturn an election. So what's 
a government shutdown is like miniature golf, right? So I, I think that they are being egged on by Bannon and others, right? I think the strategy here is that they need to try to make sure that Joe Biden fails, right? So crashing the American economy is one of the ways they hurt Biden. They tried that with the debt ceiling, and McCarthy ended up negotiating a deal that the Freedom Caucus opposed, Democrats voted for it, got it over the line. I think if that happens again, everyone believes that he will be ousted as speaker. We now know that Scalise has cancer, who is the most likely to replace him. And I, I think, you know, we're in a period where we could see really extraordinary levels of chaos in the United States. And we already had our credit rating by one of the credit agencies was downgraded because of this behavior by Republicans, because of the sense that they're willing to pull the pin in the grenade, right? And so there is actual, like, real danger here. I mean, the recovery is still fragile. You know, we are still getting to the other side of COVID. You know, interest rates are still a little bit, they're too high, right? We're still, there's a fragility underneath all of this that I think they're going to try to exploit because at the end of the day, they care more about hurting Joe Biden than they care about the country. And so I think the next few weeks is going to be really brutal here. And I think for anyone who wants to know how they can engage and help, you know, at the core of this is going to be a big economic conversation. And you know, about budgets and about growth and how we grow the economy. And we've got a very strong story to tell. The Republicans don't. And we've got to prosecute the economic part of this as well as the political part, I think, to help get Biden's numbers up to a better place in the economy, which is the central political project for the next six months. And you think about it. I mean, when they do this stuff, when House Republicans and now, you know, Ted Cruz is jumping on the bandwagon again. Remember, he was the architect of the 2013 shutdown in the House, right? He's the chief arsonist of the Republican Party, right? Right. They need Biden to fail. But to do that, again, they have to be anti-American, anti-American worker, anti-economy. They have to sit at the table with the Russians, the Saudis, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, the Emiratis. And they're willing to do these things. Yeah. I mean, Reed, you've been in this business a long time. And, you know, the way I look at this is they treat the Saudis and the Russians the way they treat the Chamber of Commerce, right? Like it's a constituency group with a lot of money and power. And so when they get stuff from them, then they have to give a few things back. So, for example, I mean, the Republicans are talking about rolling back if they win in 2025, rolling back all the clean energy investments that are, you know, helping make sure the planet doesn't warm. And so there's something deeply tragic about all of this because I think. The Republican project has become disconnected from the national interests. And, you know, it's what I still have so been so amazed by is the willingness to continually align with the Saudis and the Russians again and again and again. I mean, for example, on high gas prices, right? Republicans blame Joe Biden for high gas prices. Joe Biden's had nothing to do with high gas prices. The Russians and the Saudis are responsible for high gas prices. All these Republicans around the country, who drive fuel-inefficient vehicles, who are now paying more at the tank. That's being done not by Democrats, but by Russians and Saudis. And the Republicans, by blaming us, are creating space for the Saudis and the Russians to keep raising prices. And so they're taking steps that are doing enormous harm, disproportionate harm to their own voters, because higher gas prices affect Republicans much more than it does Democrats, right? But it's okay with them. They can rationalize that somehow we're going to bullshit our way through this, right, where our own voters aren't going to understand that it's our coalition that's raising their gas prices at the pump, because somehow we're just going to tell them that it's Joe Biden somehow miraculously, right, even though we're going to pump more oil this year in America than any year in American history, that somehow Joe Biden did that, right? And it's the biggest, I'm actually going to write a piece on this this week. I I think it's among the most extraordinary lies in our politics right now that higher gas prices, higher energy prices somehow is due to the Biden presidency, as opposed to a guy who's done more to try to create American energy independence than virtually any president in our history, and where we're making enormous strides on that. We should be proud of what we're doing, because we're producing more oil than we ever have in American history and more renewable energy than we ever have, which is exactly what we need to be doing for the American people and our national security. And yet the Republicans have ended up on the other side of that, aligned with the Russians and the Saudis against that. And it's just, it's tragic. And if you're aligned with the Russians and the Saudis, what does that tell you? I mean, look, the lack of 
patriotism, the lack of love of country, the MAGA virus that has overtaken, Republicans have turned them into something that's at war with everything that's made America great throughout all of our history, that's made us the shining beacon for the whole world. I mean, there is no politician in our history that's turning over more in their grave than Ronald Reagan, right? And I, I think that you know, part of my theory about what happened to Republicans is that when the Cold War ended, I mean, if there were two pillars of modern republicanism, one being sort of the manifestation of the Southern strategy domestically and how that played out, and then anti-communism abroad, when anti-communism went away, what was left of the Republican Party was a Southern strategy, Republican Party, which was fighting the war to preserve the white race. And that war, as you pointed out earlier, is an existential war. And so all tools are available. And the Republicans no longer, that connection to pro-democracy, to fighting communism, to promote democracy around the world, it became attenuated. It became weakened after the Cold War ended. And so, you know, what's happened now is the Republican Party has continually drifted into something that is more illiberal, you know, over this time. And it is an incredible betrayal of everything that Lincoln and Reagan fought for with, you know, with everything they had. And I often get criticized in my own writing for praising Reagan and for praising Lincoln and for praising the Republican Party that I grew up with. But the Republican Party that I grew up with was a powerful force for democracy here and all around the world. And I hope that we, in the next few years, Reed, can see something that looks more like that than the party that we have now. Well, listen, from your lips to God's ears. Okay, before we, I let you go, because I've kept you too long already, tell me about the Hopium Chronicles. Well, I think when I was on here in March, I had just launched it. You just launched, right. So here we are six months in. Yeah, I, look, I think there are a couple of reasons I did this. I mean, I started the organization NDN that I ran for 27 years to attack a series of political challenges that are no longer really with us. I mean, we now have a new set of challenges. And to me, there are three things that I really am focusing on. I think this new era of politics that we're entering, we called it the post-Cold War era. It didn't even have a name. I call it the age of globalization, this new age that we're entering, post-Trump, post-whatever, post-MAGA, is, you know, has got two big battles that we have to win. One is against climate change, and the other one is to preserve freedom and democracy here and all around the world. These are new fights for many of us. These are not the things that we worked on over much of the last 30 years. And I think we have to understand these new challenges, build a successful politics around them, and actually successfully govern against them. You know, these, to me, are existential challenges. It's a new politics, in essence, and we've got to learn it and, and master it the way we mastered some old politics before. But the other piece is that we have to not be content with the media imbalance and the loudness of the right, and we need to learn how to get louder and to really deal with what you were describing earlier, which is the unbelievable power of the right-wing propaganda ecosystem that's been built. You know, I call it the right-wing noise machine. It's why you're here, Reed. It's why you have this podcast, is that we all feel that we need to be louder and to be more effective in communicating against all that. And I, running a 501c3c4 organization where speech was very limited by tax status, I found was no longer the right place for me. And I, so I've built this Substack where I write almost every day. And it's multimedia. It's got audio and video. It's very powerful. And I've really enjoyed, we've built a great community there. And, and I think the most powerful part for me of this project has been the engagement with regular people. And just, you know, two weeks ago, I asked everyone on my Substack to talk about what projects they were working on in the fall. How were they being, you know, big citizens and how were they contributing to our democracy? And you had, I had hundreds and hundreds of people share what they were working on, people learning from each other, learning about new organizations, learning about new ways to get involved, learning how to be better at democracy promoters, you know, fighting for democracy. And it's that community sense that is very possible in Substack, where we're building a sense of proud patriots who love their country, who are going to work and doing the work every day, where we're learning from one another about how to be better at all of this. And to me, that's been the most exciting. It's why I chose Substack, because the community engagement part of it is so powerful. It's a very powerful platform. And it's been great. I will tell I joke all the time, Reed, that I'm having more fun than an aging political operative could ever have. I'm sure you feel that way sometimes too. Sometimes. In the, in the great <laughs> Yeah, in the in the great work that you do. And and I and I do want to I want to end, you know, if we're closing by saying a big thank you to you and your community and the Lincoln Project. 
the courage that you demonstrate every day to stay in the fight instead of going off and given the disappointment that you've had and what's happened to your party, to stay in the fight, to keep trying to forge these relationships with Democrats and build this pro-democracy coalition. It's the highest form of patriotism. And I just want to say thank you, because I don't think we would be where we are today without you and your other former Republicans, you know, doing the work that you do. You know, you've been a critical part of our success in recent years. But as you know, the next one is really the big one, Reed. And so we've got a lot of work to do in the next 14 months. Well, and I can only say thank you. But let me close with a quote. And I first heard it a few weeks ago. Jeff Goldblum is an old video of him, I think, on Stephen Colbert's show. But indulge me. This is George Bernard Shaw. This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no, quote, brief candle for me. It is the sort of splendid torch which I have got a hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. I don't know that I could describe it better than Bernard Shaw did in those few words. Amen to every one of those words. And I... You know, I'm more tired, even though I'm having more fun than ever. I also <laughs> am more tired because as you get older, right, there's a, it's a little bit more taxing. And I think I underestimated my stamina a little bit in this. But our country needs us now to be proud patriots and to stand up for this remarkable, the greatest country in the history of the world. I mean, I, I tell this story in my presentations about how the world that FDR imagined and built, built on these four basic freedoms, right, that he articulated in his State of the Union speech in 1941 that became the basis of the Atlantic Charter in 1942 and became the basis of the United Nations. And essentially, the entire global system that we have today was built upon these four basic freedoms. This notion that we were built upon freedom as the foundational value, as a way to respond to a politics of dominion where authoritarians want a dominion over people but not freedom, that this world that we imagined in America and built in the 1940s has created a golden age in human history. There's never been a better time to be alive than during Pax Americana and during since the 1940s. We've seen more people have lived under democracies than any time in human history. We've seen explosion of trade and economic opportunity that has no parallel in American history. We've seen people of color and women and minorities having more opportunities than any time in human history. We've seen extreme poverty plummet. We've seen life expectancies explode. In every measure of societal health, there's never been a time to be alive as there is today. And what's important is that we built that world. The America built that world. We fashioned a world that's created a golden age of human history. And that's what this battle with MAGA is about. MAGA is aligned with forces that want that world to end. They want to return to a world of dominion and not freedom. And that's why, you know, this battle that we're all in is a battle that is deeply consequential because the world that is today is the best world that there's ever been for just an average person. And that's what this fight's about, Reed, right? I mean, we're here as people who are part of a global system and a politics where we've been able to export the best of America to the rest of the world. And this is a battle worth fighting. And I, what's been so affirming to me is how many people have decided to go fight this with everything they got, where there's millions of us now doing this. It's growing and getting bigger and bigger. And we're saving democracy together and saving this global system that we built together. America has been the most consequential. I describe it as that America probably is the most consequential political force in all of human history. And this is a battle worth fighting. And I'm glad to be in the trenches with you every day, Reed. Well, amen to that. Okay, where can we find the Hopium Chronicles? If you're still on social media somewhere, where can we find you? I am. I'm on, I'm on Twitter or X, whatever it's called for now. But my primary place is Substack, which you can just find me by typing in Simon Rosenberg and Substack or Simon Rosenberg Hopium. You'll find it. It's free to subscribe. It doesn't cost any money. If you want to become a paid member, that's great too. But 
what I love about Substack is that it's free and regular people, you know, people on fixed incomes and so on can still enjoy the content. And then those who become paid subscribers toss me a little bit of money to keep growing the community and make our content better. So please join me there. The water's warm. We've built a great community and I have a lot of fun with it every day. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because it's really been one of the most gratifying political projects I've ever been involved in. Absolutely. Go sign up there, gang. As always, you can find me on Twitter or X at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Simon, always an incredible pleasure to have you. Hopefully you'll come back early next year where you can give us some more hopium <laughs> as we look into 2024. As always, thanks for joining me and everyone else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.